Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm James Kirsten. I'm with my colleague, Dr. Michael Johnston. And we just wanted to update you a little bit on what's happening with higher education and secondary education, so universities and schools. And um, Michael, I understand there's been a, a new survey of this new assessment that the Ministry of Education is, is, is putting out. That's right. So in 2024, the plan is to introduce a co-requisite for NCEA, which means that students won't pass NCEA unless they get this co-requisite in reading, writing and numeracy. So for the past couple of years, the Ministry of Education have been piloting, trialling the assessments for these new standards. And the results haven't been that good. So last year we had a fairly small-scale trial of the assessments and about two-thirds of the kids passed the reading and numeracy ones and just one-third the writing. Okay, so that doesn't sound very good on the face of it. So what were these assessments supposed to test? Were they supposed to test a high level of literacy and numeracy, the level that would get you into university, or, or what? No, indeed. It's just a basic level of adult literacy and numeracy to kind of function in society and do basic kind of work and fill in forms and the like. So so it is pretty dismal. Now, actually, the, the 2022 pilot, which is larger scale, is uh, even worse. Uh, to be fair, the writing's about the same. The reading is three percentage points lower, so three percentage points fewer students passed the uh, reading this year than last time, and the numeracy is down nine points, so just over half are now performing in that in that standard at the expected level. Right, so I, I, I understand that you were one of the people who was trying to sort of highlight the failure of the previous study, or you know the lower results in the previous study, and there was a bit of pushback. People were saying from the ministry, well, it wasn't really meant to be a proper survey this year. The, you know, it wasn't representative. There weren't many students involved. Was this year's attempt, uh, was this year's study or assessment an attempt to kind of deal with those problems and have a larger sample? Certainly the larger sample it gives a more reliable result. Although, in my opinion, last time it was large enough to give us a pretty good idea. And, and I think that opinion has been borne out by the, the results this time around. Yes, I was a little bit taken aback by the extent to which everybody seemed perfectly relaxed about the result last time. We had people from the English Teachers Association and the New Zealand Principals Association and the Ministry of Education t- essentially explaining the, these dismal results away. Yeah, this, was, this was following a, a New Zealand Initiative report on, on those results. Right, and I, I guess, you know, uh, now that they've actually have ha- gone and gotten a bigger sample and maybe they've dealt with some of the issues of the previous study, it's almost worse, right, because you have this mm. quite startling result on an even more robust basis that, you know, kids aren't actually doing well. They aren't managing to achieve this very basic level of literacy and numeracy. Yes, that's right. But look, we ought to have known already that this was going to happen for, from our, our national school sample monitoring project. Mm-hmm. We see in that that about the same proportion of year eights that are not getting the NCA requirement are not meeting the standard in that either. So we have plenty of data to tell us that we have big problems with literacy and numeracy in our education system. It shouldn't really have taken this pilot to tell them that. And really it goes back to the way these things are taught at primary school level. And until that's addressed, we're going to continue to have these problems. 
Okay, so if they do roll out this assessment for real in the way that it is set up now, and we continue to get you know pretty astonishing rates of failure, mm. what kind of consequences is that going to have for the students? Well, catastrophic ones in terms of the proportion getting NCEA. I can't see how that's how it's possible for them to set it as a, a co-requisite when it would mean that two-thirds of our students at least would not end up with any level of NCEA because two-thirds of them are not getting the writing standards. And if that's a co-requisite for NCEA, then two-thirds of them won't get NCEA. Right. On the other hand, because they designed it to sort of signal a basic understanding of numeracy and literacy, if they just allow people to get NCEA anyway, it sort of signals that NCEA isn't a very good test of numeracy and literacy, which is also not a well, great situation. Well, NCEA itself is not designed to be a test of literacy and numeracy. That's why we've got these standards. Right, right. The literacy and numeracy requirements for NCEA at the moment are frankly a joke because they don't require kids to meet any particular level of literacy and numeracy. They have to acquire 10 credits in each of literacy and numeracy from a large range of standards, many of which do require them to do something with reading, writing or, or numbers, but there's nothing in the standards themselves that specify a particular level of proficiency. And consequently, whether or not kids get those standards indicates almost nothing about, about their level of literacy and numeracy. So the new requirement is... is much more robust, and, and it's a good development in that respect. Mm -hmm. But it's highlighting this enormous problem that we have. Okay, um, so is there anything that can be done about this you know, in the short term to improve these students' scores? In the short term? Uh, <laughs> well, the problem is that the, it's flo it flows through from difficulties 10 years ago at primary school for, the, for these kids. So mm. I think we need to throw resources urgently at years 7 to 10, to redress the problem that we've created by not teaching these kids properly earlier on. But most importantly, we need to reform the way we address these things at primary school level. And yes, that will take a long time to flow through the system. And in the meantime, I can't see how we can, in good conscience, put these standards in place as co-requisites. I think we should put them in place, but as a standalone certificate for literacy and numeracy, until such time as the kids who have been disadvantaged by poor teaching, frankly, at primary school level, have moved through the system. Right. And to be clear, just because I, I think I know what your views are, and just so I don't get too many angry letters, you mean by poor teaching that they're using the wrong kind of educational That's right. methodology? I'm not, I, I, yes, I should follow that up by saying it is not teachers' fault. They're doing what they've been taught to do in their training. It's just that that doesn't work very well for a mm -hmm. lot of kids. Yeah. But I think it's, it's, it, there are some details in these results that are worth reflecting on as well, and a particularly disturbing one is a contrast uh, between school deciles and the writing standard. So we have 62% of decile 10 students getting the writing standard compared with 2% of decile 1 students, almost none of them. There are similar, well, there are gaps in reading and numeracy as well, but they're much smaller than, than that writing one. And I think that tells us something about the importance of good methods of teaching writing early on and you know listeners may have heard me interview Dr Helen Walls a few weeks ago and and Dr Barbara Blick on on these issues they're they're both primary school teachers who have done a lot of research on the best methods of teaching writing and Helen in particular has spent a lot of time teaching in low decile schools and she will tell you that it is particularly important there to have a highly structured approach. So these methods that 
you know, uh, sound nice but don't work, the, the kind of child-centred idea, particularly disadvantaged kids from less wealthy communities. And that's because they don't necessarily have parents who are able to make up for the shortfalls of what happens at school. So middle-class households are more likely to have sort of informal reading instruction within the within the home. Is that the idea? Well, reading, but but the the really or writing the really the, critical yeah, thing is yeah, writing, yeah. and and writing is in many ways a more difficult skill to acquire than reading. So, if reading is taught well, if kids are taught the correspondences between spelling and sound, as imperfect as they are in English, that allows you to decode about seventy percent of of the language, and so. If they've got a good oral vocabulary and if they've been taught those correspondences, then with a good amount of practice, they're going to learn to read pretty well almost all of the time. There are a few kids who, who will always struggle because they have dyslexia or, or other issues like that. But if they're taught in that way, then by and large it's going to work. Writing is a productive skill rather than a receptive one. In other words, you're expressing something rather than just comprehending something. <laughs> And so putting together a good piece of writing, you know, that's a much deeper skill. You will know as, as a university teacher, as I do, that undergraduates struggle to write a decent essay with a beginning, a middle and an end. And so you can get on top of the basics of putting a sentence together, but then there's a whole lot of other aspects to writing that go on and on and on in terms of the the cognitive demands. Yeah, and I will say I see a huge diversity of the level of writing in my first year students. Some of them write quite well and a lot of them don't write particularly well and that's not great for students coming into university because it is such a basic skill to be able to, you know, engage in the humanities or even the sciences, you know, to write up reports and yeah. so on and so forth. There's, there's one other um, aspect of these results that I think is, is worth talking about, which is that while most of the kids who participated in this pilot were in year 10... Some were in year nine and some were in year eight. Now, what's interesting is that there seems to be no difference, particularly across the year levels in the proportions meeting the standards. And that tells us that kids are really not making much progress in these areas in the early secondary school years. Mm. Now, traditionally, of course, secondary schools have seen it as the job of primary school to teach these basic skills which, you know, we might expect would be the case. And so I think one thing that we can do is really take more seriously the fact that kids are coming into secondary school with less skill in these areas than we might hope and actually put in some place some measures to, to help them, the ones who are not actually meeting these standards earlier on. And that certainly is something that we can do in the shorter term and we must do. What kind of measures? specialist teachers going into schools and, and actually helping out. It would quite, quite take quite a lot of resources to do that, but the cost to people's lives later on is much greater than what it would cost to redress the problem. So I think you want to talk about now a bit about a, a survey that's been done in universities on the extent to which people are willing to express their ideas. That's right, Michael. I think you might know about the survey because, in fact, your name is on it um, oh, yes. as, one of the co as one of the co-authors, inclu including so mine. So this is uh, coming out any moment now in MDPI, which is the name of the, the website, which is sort of a holding website for lots of different journals. And the name of this journal is Social Sciences. And the name of the article is Perceived Freedom of Expression at New Zealand Universities. 
And th- this is a result of a survey that we, we did together, together with Heterodox Academy or Heterodox New Zealand. And we basically put out a survey for 700, well, we put out a survey and we had 791 students respond at New Zealand universities. And we asked them questions basically about how comfortable they would be to express views on various topics in the classroom. And the results were sort of in line with international trends. So depending on the issue, between 20% and 40% of New Zealand students express reluctance to, to, quote, speak up and give their views in the classroom. And overall, 65.4% were reluctant to speak on at least one of the topics that we surveyed. And so I say this is in line with international trends because there have been similar surveys in other countries in the United States, run by Heterodox Academy and other organizations in Britain and Canada. And actually, that last statistic I gave there, 65.4% of New Zealand were reluctant to speak on at least one of the topics surveyed. That's actually higher than in the United States. In the United States, that number was 56.6%. Which topic is that? That's across all the topics that were surveyed. Right. And I should say that one of the advantages of our survey, I think, is that we basically took the Heterodox Academy template. They have a standard survey that they give out and it's been used in very different contexts within the United States. And we basically took that and we used the same survey except that we changed certain questions because, you know, New, New Zealand has slightly different demographics in the United States. So they ask questions about African-American minorities and we ask questions about Maori and Pacifica sure. minorities. But basically it's the same survey. So the results are very much comparable. Mm. Now, just uh, in case listeners aren't aware, what, what is the Heterodox Academy? Sorry, the Heterodox Academy is a kind of international consortium of professors or academics. And it was founded because of concerns about academic freedom, free speech on campus, polarization on campus and it seeks to sort of further values such as open discussion and respectful disagreement Mm. and so uh, there are various heterodox communities sort of chapters of heterodox academy and there's one of them in new zealand heterodox new zealand and so the the colleagues that we wrote this just to make clear to people out there the colleagues that we we wrote this paper with are are members of that organization and so this this article is just about to come out so what i just wanted to do today is sort of signal to people, you know, just to let people know it's coming out. And we are actually planning on doing a podcast in which we sort of dive more deeply into the results. But um, yeah, this is a bit of a teaser. It's a bit of a teaser, but I can, you know, I can tell you broadly, you know, what we found was, was I, uh, you know, as I say, the situation here seems to be like it is in the United States. There are people do have concerns about their ability to speak out in the classroom. And I, you know, I, there's a lot of polemic, there's a lot of debate around this issue, and, and I think for all of us, because, you know, okay, I'm a humanist, but most of the people who co-authored this article are scientists, we wanted to actually gather some real data and, you know, try, try and look at it, what, what, what's really going on here. And we wanted to have a look at, you know, undergraduates in as many universities as we could in New Zealand. I think most of them in the end were from Otago, but we had, you know, a good number from Vic and Auckland and yeah. other universities. And you said between 20 and 40%, depending on the topic, were expressing some, re- right. some reluctance to, to discuss their ideas. That's right. So what does that say about what our university system is, is doing? Isn't the university supposed to be a place where ideas are discussed in a pretty open and, and free way? So if... if you know, somewhere between a fifth and two-fifths of, of students, depending on the topic, don't feel free to do that. Why are we funding universities? Well, I mean, we could say we're funding universities because they do lots of other things like science. You know, they, they, you, you could probably do quite a lot of science. Um, you know, like in the Soviet Union, they did a certain amount of science without free speech. So you could say, well, you know, they could, they could work to that extent. But no, it is a huge issue. Mm. And after a certain point, obviously, the lack of free speech starts to inhibit and to affect academic research. And that actually was one of the main reasons that John Haidt, 
the American psychologist founded Heterodox Academy. It was the issues that I mentioned before, you know, open discussion, respectful disagreement, polarization. But it was also another key idea, idea, which is that if you don't have free speech at universities, you don't have academic freedom, and uh, you do have a huge ideological skew in one direction, then that's going to start to affect research. It's going to start to affect the kinds of questions people look at. It's kind of it's going to start to affect the kinds of answers that people feel that they can sort of respectfully publish. So, I mean, we haven't gone into all that. We're sort of going, you know, piece by piece. And uh, listeners may know that the New Zealand Free Speech Union did a survey last year, I think, where they... they that was academics. Uh, yeah, they asked students. academics at New Zealand universities how they felt in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how comfortable they were expressing their views. And that also, I, I think, uh, brought up some issues that a lot of academics feel more constrained than free to mm. have their say. I think in the case of the discussions of the Treaty of Waitangi, it was about half. I think it was exactly half of academics at New Zealand universities said they felt more constrained than free to discuss that issue. Mm. Uh, so that's academics. Okay, that's interesting. So, uh, so what we were doing here is, okay, well, let's look at undergraduate students. We, we did specifically undergraduate students and not postgraduate students. But yeah, so there's some interesting patterns there because we were able to, we have some good statisticians on board, including yourself, Michael. And so we were able to sort of break this down. We asked people you know, not only what they thought of their uh, ability to speak freely in classroom, but how they perceived other people, uh, how, how free they perceived other groups of people as being. And we, and we broke this down by ethnicity and, and sex and gender and religious yep. affiliation and, and, and sexuality and so on and so forth. So we've got some more granular data. And hopefully, we're, as I say, we're going to have a podcast with some of these other excellent uh, scientists uh, on here. Well, we look forward to that very much. Just as a, a sort of parting note about this particular issue, though, I, I think it's worth reminding listeners that if they think that universities are just places where academics do esoteric stuff and, and that it doesn't really affect our society, bear in mind that you know about a third of our young people move through those institutions, they get degrees and then they go out into the workforce and what they learn at university, the skills, the knowledge, but also the doctrines will affect our society much more broadly in, in, in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, one, one other point I, I should say is that, um, I mean, the, the other side of this debate, it's often said, well, you know, there was never a time when there was complete free speech anywhere, including on universities. Mm. Um, so it may be that if you go, go back to the 1950s in New Zealand or the 1960s, I'm sure that people felt, felt constrained, for example, to some extent to attack the Christian faith, for example. Or attack New Zealand institutions to, or to express communist views. Or exactly something. right. Uh, although Jim Flynn did move here because he felt more comfortable having right. uh, democratic socialist views yes. here than in the states, where he was sort of a subject of McCarthyite uh, persecution. But so I, I would take that point on board. I mean, it's probably true that to some extent there are always limits on what people feel they can say, if only for social reasons. Mm -hmm. But this is why I think it's really important what Heterodox Academy is doing and what we've sort of joined in. We really want to get some hard data on on this. How free do people feel? And the even in that context, even if you think, well, there's always some limitations on free speech, yeah. some of the data that we already have are, are concerning. So, for example, in the, in the United States, a survey suggested that people as a whole, you know, members of the public, they feel more constrained. They feel that the environment for free speech is worse than in the McCarthyite era. So that, sorry, that's not that they ask people now, do you feel the environment mm -hmm. is worse than in the McCarthyite era? They did a similar, similar survey Back then. over many yeah. years. And the answer, you know, the people feel more constrained than the people in the McCarthy era to have their say. So, yeah. and I, and you know, again, we want to do the proper science. We don't want to prejudge it, but I, I suspect there is something up in terms of universities. I think it is particularly bad here, but you know, we want to be careful. And and so hopefully we can kind of continue doing this. This can be this can become like a feature of 
New Zealand public life as it's becoming in America and Britain that we do proper science on, you know, we have a thermometer for what's the climate for free speech on universities. It's an extremely important issue. As you say, we're publicly funding these institutions. So we want to make sure that they're, you know, they're actually liberal democratic institutions rather than captured by, by one ideological faction. And that yes. people who go there and, uh, you, you know, that pay fees or get help uh, to, to, to be there, they're actually able to engage intellectually no matter where they're, they're coming from. doesn't mean that, you know, they can have their say without criticism, but that, that's not what we're asking about. No, it's more that just that you can discuss things in the classroom from whatever point of view you're coming from. Well, there's one, it's one thing to criticise the idea and it's, it's another thing to attack the person. And I think, you know, it's the latter that we have to watch watch out for. But we'll look forward to the next discussion on this with some of the other co-authors and, and we'll go into the results in this uh, in much more depth. Excellent. We'll speak then. All right. Cheers. Cheers.